You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with some new developments surrounding allegations VPD officers attempted to interfere in the investigation of one of their own. It started when an off-duty VPD officer was involved in a traffic accident in Burnaby. A confrontation between Vancouver and Burnaby RCMP officers allegedly followed. Vancouver's police chief was asked about it today. Catherine Urquhart has the latest. At the Vancouver Police Department, senior officers gather for a police board meeting to discuss a number of issues. Not on the public agenda, a serious incident that occurred earlier this week. How concerned are you about it? Well, we have to get the facts and find out what happened. B based on what I've heard, not that concerned. My understanding is they were all off duty and we're doing a review of the uh, situation. On Tuesday, up to a dozen officers from the women's personal safety team gathered at Odd Squad Productions for some off-duty training. Midday, they went to Metrotown Mall to practice that training. On the way, one officer allegedly made an illegal left-hand turn, crashing into another motorist. Minutes later, a Burnaby RCMP officer was on scene, then the VPD members, one of whom allegedly tried to retrieve the driver's phone from the car. When the Mountie intervened, she grabbed the RCMP member's arm. It's also alleged a VPD superintendent threatened the Mountie's job. That Mountie sent this message on their computer-assisted dispatch. It reads, my job has already been threatened and have been accused of assaulting another member. It's a very emotional situation anytime somebody's been injured in a car accident and emotions run high. It's early days and uh, we'll trust the process. Several investigations are underway by the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner, Burnaby RCMP and Vancouver Police. Those investigations will likely continue for a number of months. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Also out of that meeting today, the Vancouver Police Board has endorsed a ban on a controversial patch some frontline officers wear. It depicts the thin blue line. For some, it's a symbol of support for the role officers play in society. But as Imadagahi reports, to others, the patch is a symbol of hate and division. As it happens, the thin blue line patch is not approved by our uniform committee. After a civilian complaint led to a Vancouver police internal review, the department has decided to instruct its officers against wearing what has now become a contentious symbol on their uniforms. There's a small number of officers that wear it. I mean, I'm aware that some do, and they wear it with good intention. The debate surrounds what's called the thin blue line. A symbol with deep roots dating back decades. It means service, sacrifice, esprit de corps, recognizing fallen officers. Its interpretation different among those with a badge than it is to marginalized communities. It has a historical basis in, in division, in colonization, uh, in racism. President of the Urban Native Youth Association Matthew Norris says for some the symbol carries with it a lot of baggage and pain. Oh, this idea and concern that a lot of Indigenous people have, a lot of racialized people, marginalized people have, is that this thin blue line represents a division. And a division where uh, too often Indigenous peoples are on the other side of that line. Recently, Victoria Police joined the RCMP in banning the symbol on police uniforms. 
The Calgary Police Commission has also issued a directive for officers to no longer wear it. There are no unauthorized badges or patches or pins that are allowed on our various uniforms. Up until now in Vancouver, the issue has lingered and become a source of criticism towards City Council Brian Montague after the retired VPD sergeant was seen wearing the patch and defending it with strong language online. I think that sometimes, quite frankly, the media has made more of a big deal out of this than there needs to be. Responses which add to the frustration, according to Norris. I think the outrage came later when you realize the reluctance to have that conversation and, and the flat-out denial that that interpretation exists. Imadagahi, Global News. And one more VPD note for you. The Vancouver... Uh, Vancouver Police Board today extended Chief Constable Adam Palmer's contract through 2025. The department's three deputy chiefs also got the same extension. Well, two men have been charged nearly six years after a violent home invasion on Vancouver Island. In April of 2017, Nermeen Ali Reza was alone inside her Oak Bay home when an unknown man attacked her with a machete. She suffered significant life-altering injuries. The man fled and police couldn't find him until this past Sunday. Officers arrested 30-year-old Casper Hanspiker in Maple Ridge. He's now charged with aggravated assault, break and enter and committing a robbery. 52-year-old Christopher Standell is facing one count of accessory after the fact to break and enter and committing a robbery. Yet another warning tonight from Vancouver fire officials about the dangers of improper use of rechargeable batteries used in things like e-bikes and scooters and many other devices. As Paul Johnson reports, they say fully half of the city's fire deaths last year involved batteries. June of 2022, an e-bike battery explodes and starts a fire in Vancouver's Empress Hotel, killing one person. It's not the year's first fatality like this. Three people died following this fire in January, and another died after this blaze in the West End. It's a trend in fire hazards that mirrors the way we're powering our lives now. We have been seeing an increase in fire activity because of rechargeable batteries overall. Lithium-ion batteries power everything from cell phones to e-bikes. In most cases, they're astonishingly safe with a failure rate of about 1 in 40 million. But just consult YouTube to see what happens when they're used improperly and they ignite. And they can explode shooting sparks across the room. Vancouver Fire Department's Matthew Trudeau just released the alarming numbers from 2022 that of the 10 fire-related deaths they had, five happened in fires caused by rechargeable batteries. There's little mystery to the trend as the products are ubiquitous and offer plenty of opportunities for unsafe tinkering. Where some people have been modifying their e-bikes for extended range or mileage, causing strain on the batteries to overheat and operate outside their range and fail as a result. Like other things we live with that are potential fire hazards, there's no call to get rid of them, only for people to be vigilant and use them properly. Don't charge any device near flammable things. Don't overcharge them. And if you've got a concept for some exotic modification, leave that for the real engineers in a lab. We're seeing it from cell phones, from laptops, from, from e-bikes, from e-scooters. Another thing to look for, 
As governments grapple with numbers like these, there's the likelihood of new rules coming about where and how some of the larger batteries should be recharged. Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, the federal government is making it easier for Canadians to get into electric vehicles. Vancouver was the setting today for the unveiling of a portal on the Natural Resources Canada website, which will provide comprehensive information on grants available for converting to EVs, along with locations of charging stations across the country. Ottawa is also announcing $280,000 for the installation of 75 charging stations at two Vancouver residential buildings. An online one-stop shop for zero-emission vehicles infrastructure, which includes EV chargers. It's going to be a single window on Enercan's website for all information of the various federal programs that support our electric vehicle chargers and hydrogen refueling infrastructure. BC is said to be the top market in North America for zero emission vehicles. Transportation, mostly passenger cars and trucks, contributes a quarter of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. There are growing calls for BC health officials to rethink the province's vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. They have to be vaccinated against COVID-19 to work. But with our healthcare system at capacity and crippling staffing shortages, some are wondering if now is the time to lift that mandate. Richard Zussman has more on the provincial dilemma. Andrea Henders was one of BC's healthcare heroes, a nurse delivering babies at Kelowna General Hospital when COVID-19 hit. Then she lost her job. It's um, unfair. It's unjustified. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm facing right now kind of the end of my nursing career. Henders is one of nearly a thousand full-time BC healthcare workers who refused the COVID-19 vaccine, 1% of the workforce. The nurse hoping the province will rescind the vaccine mandate. We're all kind of equal in the sense that we can all get COVID and transmit COVID, you know, then, then what's the problem anymore? We're just as healthy and we worked, you know, almost two years of the pandemic Nobody was vaccinated. British Columbia is now an outlier in Canada. Only BC and Nova Scotia require the vaccine to work, while Ontario has no broad mandate, but many health workers are mandated by their employer. BC is looking now to move from a provincial health order to a permanent part of employment regulations. And it is what we as healthcare workers are committed to doing everything possible so that we stay healthy um, and that we are able to, to protect our patients as best we can. The mandate only includes a primary series, two shots for most COVID vaccines, meaning some healthcare workers haven't received a vaccine in closing in on two years. But in medical experts' minds, is still better than nothing. In the context that we're in right now, your risk of having severe illness, your risk of being hospitalized is considerably less. And although hospitals like this one are short-staffed across the province, mainly due to staff illness, Health Minister Adrian Dick says it would be much worse if the mandate wasn't in place. I do not agree with those who say that, that um, the health of our, the most vulnerable people, people in hospital, people in long-term care, is, is something that we should uh, in any way put at risk. Leaving Henders on the sideline, watching her colleagues struggle through a pandemic, still not in the rearview mirror. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. 
It's been 10 days since the B.C. government activated its emergency operations centers to help coordinate the response to a huge surge in respiratory illness and those extremely busy hospitals. Keith Baldry is here now with a look at how it's been going, uh, the latest hospital capacity numbers, and we're seeing a pretty clear trend emerging, Keith. Yeah, and hopefully the trend continues, Sophie. So a bit of good news tonight, folks. I've been showing you the hospital numbers from time to time over the last uh, uh, couple of weeks or so. We've really high elevated numbers. But take a look at the numbers of, about uh, January 6th and the numbers today in terms of hospitalization. So, again, the trend line is going down, down almost 3% over that time frame province-wide. Here are the busiest hospitals. Kelowna is down more than 3%. Royal Inland Camels, we've done stories on how crowded it is there, down almost 8% in terms of the number of beds occupied and Royal Columbian down as well. A number of other hospitals are down as well. Very few hospitals are up and this is very encouraging news. However, we caught up to Health Minister Adrian Dix today who says even though the trends are very encouraging right now, these emergency operation centers are going to remain in place for some time yet. The need and the continued need to manage beds so we can get the best possible care for people in BC, that continues. It's going to be in place for several more weeks in order to ensure that we provide the best possible care to everybody. So expect these emergency operation centers to remain in place probably for another month or so. And this involves uh, taking measures to ensure everyone has a hospital bed, but because again, some hospitals are over capacity, even with the numbers going down. I'll leave you on a sort of a bit of a sad note. Grim Milestone posted today on the Center for Disease Control website, the day, the Thursday update when it comes to COVID. We've cracked the 5,000 uh, barrier when it comes to people who have died of COVID, literally almost three years to the day next week or so, 10 days from now is when we had our first case. In that time frame, 5,007 people have died of COVID-19. Almost three years, as you say, hard to remember life before COVID now. Thanks, Keith. The management of Vancouver's homeless encampments comes at a staggering cost. We now know taxpayers are on the hook for more than $6 million since 2018. And as Kristen Robinson reports, critics say it'll cost even more to solve the problem. As the park board continues to power the Crab Park encampment, the bills are mounting. 18 months of tents at Oppenheimer Park cost the city $3.5 million, plus at least $360,000 in fire costs. Strathcona Park came in at $2.2 million, in total more than $6 million spent since 2018. But residents say the human costs are much higher. Like people died you know, as a result of those encampments. Like, that is way bigger than any number could be. Fires, murders, overdose deaths, and serious assaults. Katie Lewis says she was attacked by a stranger during 10 months of chaos at Strathcona Park. She's hoping the ABC majority will be more proactive in addressing encampments. Not only for our neighborhoods, but also most importantly for the true vulnerable people that are living within these encampments because they deserve better, truly. These challenges did not creep up overnight and they are significant and they will take time. The mayor says Vancouver can't solve this alone. BC's premier does not support encampments and Ken Sim says the city is working with the province which has agreed to oversee the path forward. How much more city money will we see go into encampments? Yeah. 
So, you know, we're, we're going to be obviously uh, fiscally uh, uh, prudent, but make no mistake about it, we have a humanitarian crisis going on in our city, and we will be allocating resources uh, to these issues. It's definitely not good use of taxpayer funds when we, we have so many pressing issues. But Councillor Pete Fry says if the courts maintain people cannot be evicted if viable housing alternatives are not available, the city's hands are tied. It really puts the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver Park Board in a very difficult position. As long as these scenes are allowed to continue, he says there will be necessary expenses. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Thieves steal artwork by an iconic artist. Went, oh no, not again. The print by legendary creator Joe Average, stolen from a theater space. The suspects caught on camera. Next on the News Hour. She was the ideal fan, hated all the bad guys and just loved every good guy. Sebastian Wolf on the rise in the ring and how his Nana influenced his love of pro wrestling coming up. Also tonight, the passing of a rock legend, the enduring influence of David Crosby later. Right now, though, there has been another brazen art theft caught on camera in Vancouver. And despite the artist involved, this was no average heist. This stolen print, or paint rather, print rather, is by Joe Average, one he donated to a social housing complex in Coal Harbor. And as Julie Nolan reports, he's ready to step up again. Yeah, you can't beat a space like this in downtown Vancouver. This is the theater space at PAL Vancouver, billing itself as innovative social housing for seniors who were once performing artists. Their little piece of heaven, often generously shared with the public, becoming the target of thieves one week ago. To target a nonprofit in the middle of the downtown Vancouver core is pretty devastating for us. And there they were, caught on security camera, even high-fiving each other as they got in. We saw them fiddling around on the um, number pad trying to get in and eventually someone did allow them access into the building. The pair trying to gain access to the theater space, leisurely hanging out and then playing the piano in the lobby, later spotting a beautiful print on the wall. It was so inviting, it set such a warm tone. Donated by artist Joe Average in 2006, it's worth thousands of dollars. People are so desperate at the moment that they would target any, any opportunity that they could find. Joe Average says unfortunately many of his pieces have been stolen in the past at other venues. It's uh, frustrating. Frustra Why do people first of all target places like that, you know, like nonprofits? Pal Vancouver is still hoping for the return of the art, but Average says he's ready to donate a new piece to them in case it can't be recovered. Meantime, residents are learning to be more vigilant and less trusting of deliveries and others trying to gain access to the building. Initially, people were, they were shaken, they were very unsettled, then they got angry, and then they realized, you know, we've, we're in a big city, bad things happen. Vancouver police say they are investigating and no arrests have been made. If you think you know these suspects, call police. Julie Nolan, Global News. Just ahead, lost luggage finally returned. My bag went a long way. How he was able to find it on the other side of the globe and how he got it back. And an emergency situation in small town BC that has residents afraid to get sick.
Crews are finally on scene to a broken down van here in Surrey, eastbound on Highway 17, just before 104th Avenue. Traffic is still backed up almost to the Portman Bridge. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids when you choose Kermac. You choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish was in Global One, high above Highway 17 in Surrey. Well, if one of your favorite things about vacationing in Mexico is enjoying a cigarette or a cigar on the beach, that has gone up in smoke. Mexico has enacted one of the world's strictest anti-tobacco laws, completely banning smoking in all public places. That includes hotels, parks, and even beaches. The law means smoking is now limited to private homes and private outdoor spaces. There are also restrictions for the sale and use of e-cigarettes and vaporizers, but they mostly focus on indoor usage. Now, NewsHour follow-up to the story of an Air Canada passenger whose bag went missing when he returned to B.C. from Mexico City. An air tag showed his luggage ended up traveling all the way to Madrid. But Air Canada wasn't being particularly helpful until Consumer Matters stepped in. And Drua is here with an update. And Thanks, Sophie. After we share Paul Clifford's story about his lost baggage ordeal with Air Canada, where he says he got little to no help from the airline, Paul says he was contacted by an Air Canada employee the next day telling him they may have found his bag. Paul says the Air Canada employee told him there was no ID on the bag, but believed staff had found it through Iberia Airlines and it was being stored in the Spanish carrier's warehouse in Madrid. After Paul was able to successfully identify the contents inside the bag, Paul tells us Air Canada made arrangements and the luggage was transported to BC where it finally arrived three days later at Victoria International Airport. As far as how the bag ended up with Iberia Airlines in the first place, here's what Paul says Air Canada told him. He believes that the Air, the Air Canada bag tag must have gotten ripped off along with my personal ID. And somehow my bag ended up on the belt for Iberia Airlines. And so Iberia Airlines took control of that bag. Person at Air Canada said that there was no Air Canada tag on it and there was no personal ID tag. Now, when we left, there was a personal ID tag very well attached. I'm eternally grateful to Consumer Matters for uh, helping me find this bag. Now, we reached out to Air Canada asking for a full explanation as to what happened to Paul's bag and exactly how it was found, but we never got a response from the airline. And just to add, Paul says he has also been told by Air Canada he will receive full compensation for the mishap. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Can't wait to find out what they mean by full compensation. Good work, Anne. Thank you. Coming up, a wake-up call for foreign students. People from our own community are exploiting people in our own community. Her experience adapting to Canada and the predators preying on new arrivals. And later in sports, patience pays off for Abbotsford Canuck Christian Wolanin working his way back to the NHL.
evening. Traffic is in good shape both ways over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but it's still busy for eastbound traffic on the 91 between Knight and the S-curve through Richmond. Renew your ICBC Auto Plan online with BC's most trusted insurance brand. Just select BCAA as your preferred broker. Learn more at bcaa.com slash car. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Ridge. A public forum in Surrey tonight will deal with an ongoing problem for international students, particularly those from South Asia. As Jennifer Palmer reports, advocates say they're still suffering from discrimination and exploitation, often at the hands of their own communities. Navreen Kaur has built a life in Canada. She came here as an international student from India. She's a registered clinical counselor and says while she's mostly had positive experiences, there is an element of exploitation South Asian international students live with and it's coming from a trusted space. People from our own community are exploiting people in our own community. Navreen says she suffered rental exploitation, landlords taking advantage of an international student's lack of knowledge surrounding tenancy laws. And as a counsellor, she says she deals with cases of sexual exploitation on a weekly basis. A lot of young international female students are being exploited by, um, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of South Asian men here, typically a lot of businessmen, who do have a family of their own, who do have children, who do have wives, who have everything here, but they still go out, exploit them for money or, or any kind of privileges they can get out of it. International students may also have a dream of becoming permanent residents, that desire driving some to face job exploitation. So you first make someone trust you as an employer, then sell them that paper for close to 30 grand, 40 grand, even 50 grand, no kidding here, and then make them work on less than minimum wage. Canada welcomes hundreds of thousands of international students and in 2021 Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada says more than 217,000 came from India. At a forum in Surrey, the exploitation of South Asian international students is being brought to light. I think especially in the South Asian community, international students get scapegoated for a lot of societal issues in our community. But I think it's imperative that we approach them with curiosity and empathy. The stress and anxiety to succeed and make their families proud proves too much for some turning to drugs when they're in need of mental health help. All of the international students are covered through their insurance benefits through school, which is extended benefits, and they can access um, um, counseling. Some of the South Asian community saying they need to do more, but they're also calling on the provincial and federal governments to protect international students. Jennifer Palma, Global News. The mayor of the district of Elkford, north of Cranbrook, is calling out the provincial government and the Interior Health Authority over the long-running closure of the local ER. It was supposed to be only temporary, but as Aaron MacArthur reports, the community has been without its emergency department for more than a year. The emergency room at the district of Elkford Clinic has been temporarily closed since September of 2021. It's very frustrating. I get, without exaggeration, daily questions from citizens. Nobody's happy about it. People are worried. Elkford is surrounded by major coal mining operations and has seen its population swell to more than 3,000 people in recent years. According to the mayor, more people live here now than at any time in the last 30 years. Yet access to health care has never been worse. I've lived here for 45 years. And it's been a steady 
loss or decay of service. We have to pretty much go all the way to Fernie. And we deserve the same care and expectations as the rest of the province. It's not just Elkford dealing with substandard access to care. Hospitals across BC have dealt with service reductions lasting from a few hours to months at a time. Clearwater has faced the most documented issues in the emergency department, but more than a dozen communities across BC have faced some reductions in services over the last year. The challenge now and what we need to do is to work through these problems, including in Elkford. And we have been doing uh, strong recruitment for Elkford, and we're going to continue to do that. Rural health care advocates applaud the government's actions to hire more staff, but say without direct incentives for new doctors and nurses to relocate, rural British Columbian residents will remain without their basic health care needs being met. We do expect equity in our, in our health and rightfully so. Interior Health says there are plans in place to hire four physicians to fill two full-time positions in Elkford by July of 2023. But it could take another year to restore emergency services in the small East Kootenai community. Having a permanent physician presence also then leads to an improved ability to recruit the other providers that would be part of the team. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Still ahead, a wrestler on a rampage. Well, you better not back a wolf into a corner. Sebastian Wolf might be vicious in the ring, but he has a soft spot for his Nana, who showed him the ropes. Also coming up, another musical legend lost. Millions are now paying tribute to David Crosby. Alec Baldwin is facing serious legal trouble for his role in the fatal shooting on the set of the film Rust. Baldwin pulled the trigger of what was supposed to be a prop gun, but the shot killed the film's cinematographer. Heather Yorick's West has more. The fact that Alec Baldwin was holding the gun that ultimately killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins has never been in question. The 2021 shooting death that took place on set during rehearsal for the movie Rust was accidental, involving a prop gun. But more than a year later, investigators have determined the 42-year-old's death was also criminal. And three people, including the actor, have been charged. News of the charges was posted on the New Mexico District Attorney's Office Facebook page. After a thorough review of the evidence and the laws of the state of New Mexico, I have determined that there is sufficient evidence to file criminal charges, Mary Carmack Altweiss said. The charges all relate to negligence, nothing intentional. They're, they are not trying to show that any part of this wasn't accidental. They were just trying to show that they were not exercising caution and care in how they handled the gun. Alec Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer on set, have each been charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter, while assistant director David Halls pled guilty to a lesser charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. If any one of these three people had done their job, said special prosecutor Andrea Reeb, Alina Hutchins would be alive today. Hutchins' family welcomed the announcement, while Baldwin's attorney said the charges represent a terrible miscarriage of justice. I was a bit surprised. I thought the armor would be charged, but not Alec Baldwin himself, because according to reports, he was told that the gun was cold, meaning there were no live bullets in it. Live ammunition is not allowed onto Canadian film sets, but serious and even fatal accidents happen every year. 
Hutchins's death has placed a spotlight on the danger still present within the industry and the need for change. Heather Urex West, Global News. All right, let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon with a look at the weather forecast. It felt like people in Metro Vancouver were slightly happier today. Yeah, crazy with that sunshine out there. <laughs> it is do. kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, here in Vancouver, when we're dealing with sort of winters, especially like the last couple of weeks that we've had, any bit of sunshine and all of a sudden everyone breathes a, a sigh of relief. It was chilly, though, the start to the day. We saw frost across the region. We dropped temperatures by a good five degrees compared to uh, yesterday uh, through the morning hours. And most of the province cooled off, but we're just near seasonal. It has been very mild over the last little while. These were our daytime highs for today, and we're expecting similar conditions as we head into the weekend. I just want to show you the timeline. We we have the potential for snow as as I mentioned we are now back to near seasonal values which means winter like as we head through the overnight period there's a chance of a few showers across the south coast area that means the possibility of flurries for the mountains now as this next front shifts in by the way tomorrow is looking mostly dry across the region we will see some cloud cover but mostly dry it's this that I'm more so concerned about it shifts in Saturday morning to Vancouver Island it will shift across the metro Vancouver through the day on Saturday freezing levels could could be as low as 300 meters, which means areas like SFU, Westwood Plateau, certainly the Sea to Sky Highway will see snowfall through the day on Saturday. Otherwise, we're talking about rain, but it will be a cool rain, that's for sure. Quick look at the potential for snow across the region, as I mentioned. The real culprit will be the Sea to Sky Highway, but certainly higher elevations have that potential. I think it's likely through the morning hours or into the early afternoon. Here's your forecast for your Friday, everyone. Yes, we nearly made it. Sun shining through the interior, but we are going to see some rain across the west coast of Vancouver Island. For our region, though, a dry day with some cloud cover, highs of six degrees. That's seasonal for this time of year. Rainfall on Saturday, heads up. We could see some snow over higher elevations. And then, yes, some sunshine as we head into next week, although it is definitely going to feel like winter. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Silver Star Mountain, where it was winter-like today, but it was nice to have that blue sky in the mix also. That would have been a nice day for skiing today. Day, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. no it's like you, a painting. You can take the cold when it's sunny like that, no doubt about yeah. it. Thanks, Christy. Some more sad music today from the music world. Singers. Sad news. Sad news from the music world. That's what I meant. I understood completely. <laughs> Singer songwriter David Crosby has passed away. Crosby was part of two influential rock bands in the 1960s, The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. His wife releasing a statement today saying Crosby died surrounded by family after a long illness. He was 81 years old. One of the greats. And Crosby, Stills and Nash and before they added Young. Yeah. yeah. A little bit later. Yeah, uh, Squire, I'm sure you've got a... Well, I mean, you he, he was, you know, a tremendously prolific songwriter, especially in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the stuff he wrote is timeless. For sure. And that's uh, an understatement, actually. Yeah. Okay, so uh, three good things happened last night in that 5-2 loss by the Vancouver Canucks to Tampa. I know, how can there be three good things? I'll tell you the three good things. First of all, great Gino Ojic pregame tribute. Steven Stamkos got his 500th goal, and he got a standing ovation. And also this. So a boy gets hit with the puck. And everybody is concerned about his welfare, including the players. See, they're all watching, and he's okay. So they give him a puck, and they give him a stick. Isn't that nice? Aww. Sweet. 
Also, uh, Sebastian Wolf having a howl of a good time in the ring. What his Nana would think of pro wrestling's latest villain coming up. Squires here with the latest from the rumor mill. Ah uh, yes, it's churning out one name and one name only. The number of rumors about Rick Tockett becoming the Canucks new head coach are getting as high as Vancouver's goals against totals. Tockett and Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine are all old buddies from having worked together in Pittsburgh when Tockett was an assistant coach. The thing about this is why do the Canucks feel there needs to be a coaching change now if in fact they make one? Why not wait until the end of the season? Are they hoping? to go on a run and try to get back in the playoff race in a year where there's a superstar draft pick in Connor Bedard and some other excellent prospects as well. It would be the Canucks luck to change coaches, have a bump, and just miss the playoffs. Be somewhere in the mushy middle where you get, I don't know, 15th overall and you're out of the Bedard sweepstakes. Now, the other night on TNT's broadcast where talk at works, he tried to be coy about a possible Canucks job. Um, listen, I haven't signed any contract. You mentioned you. No, I haven't signed any contract. I'm, I'm here with you. I'm here. Uh, but I have, I have talked. I've, I've had known Jim Rutherford and Patrick Allen for a lot of years, and they have. I have talked to them, but I've talked to them for years about everything. So, but I'm here. Actually, as a head coach in Tampa and with the Coyotes, talking didn't do so well. I think his win percentage was 4.75. So maybe it is part of a tank to bring him in as a head coach if he arrives. The uh, Abbotsford Canucks season is going a lot better than the Vancouver Canucks season. They are one of the higher scoring teams in the American Hockey League. And one of the reasons is the play of defenseman Christian Wolanin, who is leading the attack from the back. Falls off the left point. Wolanin back to their feet. Bean scores! Are you kidding me with that pass, Christian Wolanin? Christian Wolanin is producing points like never before in his pro career. Wolanin leads the entire American Hockey League in assists with 37, and his 41 points have him tied for fifth in the scoring race. Maybe he just needed a chance. Over the last three seasons, he's bounced around three organizations, not really gaining any traction. I'm just more than thankful to be playing here playing hockey. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I've gotten a good opportunity on a team and I'm just thankful to be playing meaningful minutes, playing hockey, uh, not watching hockey. Uh, so it's just been a lot of fun here. Wolanin takes a look, feeds down, Hoaglander scores! Wolanin did have a good preseason with the NHL Canucks helping to set up this goal in a game versus Edmonton and he was called up once but did not play a game. He's played 70 NHL games over the years with the Senators, Kings and Sabres so he's got some experience but that experience also tells him to be patient and his time will come. Obviously I had a little bit of success in the NHL when I first came out of college and then new coaching staff in Ottawa and um, kind of a similar situation where I was just not going to get the looks up top and at that time it hurt and I was in a dark spot and um, you know you just got to tie up my own loose ends and, and work on my own my own self and between the years more than anything you might be maybe frustrated or underwhelmed with the situation where you're at and uh, you just be thankful for what you do got and which is playing hockey. He's still building his career he's still building his his track record and if he can be a big part of a winning team here that's it's only going to help him. Christian's dad, Craig, played 15 seasons in the NHL, including winning a Stanley Cup in Colorado in 1996. He was more a rugged defensive defenseman. Christian's got a more dynamic offensive game and is hoping that's his ticket back to the NHL one day. Of course, I'd like to be there, right? That's the dream for everybody in that locker room. But uh, 
I don't even think about the business side anymore. You know, I, I, I came here at, with, with high goals for the season. If it doesn't happen here, hopefully it happens somewhere else. At the 2019 Australian Open, it looked like Andy Murray's tennis career was done. It was on its last legs because he had a very serious hip problem. But four years later, in his mid-30s, Andy Murray is still playing. In fact, last night and in the morning as well, he played five hours and 45 minutes of tennis and rallied from a two-set deficit to beat Thanasi Kokonakis. And speaking of rallies, this is the one that made this comeback by Andy Murray more memorable. Check this out. Murray in the far court. All right, gets that one. That wasn't so hard. Okay, gets that one. Goes to the other side. Got that one. Looks like he's done. Nope. Gets that one. Yep. Uh, yep, he's got that one too. Puts this one deep. And then... Ow! Oh, a racket toss too. And Murray moves on in five sets. <laughs> I can't hear you. I can't, I can't hear you. I love that. Yeah. Cheeky. That's great. Okay. <laughs> Very cheeky. Thank you, Squire. Up next, sometimes Nana just knows. The pro wrestler who has his family matriarch to thank for his success in the ring. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you by JM Media. Visit jmmedia.ca. Jordan Armstrong is here with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Chris, we'll have an update on the rock slide near Karameas. It's been three days now since huge boulders rumbled down a mountain, crossed Highway 3, and landed in an RV park. The highway has since reopened, but tonight more than a dozen residents remain out of their homes. We'll tell you why. Plus, acknowledging the forest industry is facing tough times, the Premier made an announcement today at the Truck Loggers Convention Find out what David Eby is promising at 11. Chris? Look forward to that. Thank you very much, Jordan. Well, a BC man who dreamed of being a wrestler has just made his debut on a major show only a few years after getting into the sport. Sebastian Wolf credits his wrestling superfan grandmother with inspiring him to overcome intergenerational trauma and achieve his goal. Jay Durant has more in This is BC. It was a very big career boost, a recent call-up that brought huge exposure on All Elite Wrestling. Teamwork here from It was just four years ago when Corey Sear, a.k.a. Sebastian Wolf, began training with the Lionsgate Dojo to fulfill the dream that first started when he was four years old. I got exposed to guys like Brett the Hitman Hart and Razor Ramon, the British Bulldog, and I just, I was in awe. You can thank Nana Gloria for this love of wrestling. She got Corey and his older brother hooked, tuning into all the big matches and turning up ringside at local live events. She actually took her high heel off and started like shaking it. She was like first row, and I believe she threw it at the guy. Oh, you better not back a wolf into a corner, because he's going to bite. This is work that Corey takes tremendous pride in. Every show, Sebastian Wolf is representing Pasqua First Nation. I'm a third-generation residential school survivor. My dad and grandparents went through that system. Um, 
I carry my flag representing Pasqua First Nation out to the majority of my matches. That exact same intensity, that toughness, that mean edge. He's just getting started, but Sears already met many of his heroes, wrestlers that Nana used to admire as well. She was the ideal fan, hated all the bad guys and just loved every good guy. Finally coming to fruition. Tough spot because Sebastian Wolf is a villain, which might not sit too well with Gloria if she was still alive to see him. She'd probably be hollering at me, shaking her shoes. <laughs> but she would be so proud to see how far he's come in such a short amount of time. Before I go out to every match, I kind of talk to her and just kind of ask her to watch over me and keep me safe. I don't know if I'd ever have gotten into wrestling without her. Jay Durant, Global News. Wow. Well, if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that people need to know about, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. My back hurts just no watching kidding. that story. And we're in the area where they used to do all-star wrestling. That's right. Right the in studio. this studio. We are. Yeah. Oh, we right. should bring it back. We are about that. Yeah. <laughs> Go off Gene Kaniski. Gene Kaniski was in this room throwing right. people around. I used to love wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> watching Old it. school. <laughs> There's a party tonight, Ed, and you're not invited. Well, that's Stampede. That was Stampede wrestling. Yes. I, I grew up in Calgary. Malfunction at the junction. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay, last word on weather before we go quick. Christy? All right, so it won't be a bad day tomorrow. It'll be bright, but we will see some cloud cover. Six degrees, rain on Saturday, potential for snow over higher elevations, lots of sunshine beyond that, but chilly. Awesome. All right, thanks, Christy. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, all.